0: You're listening to a climate change this is matt matter your host and i've got a special guest on the program today osprey oriel lake the executive director of the woman's earth and climate action network uh acronym we can and uh welcome to the program osprey
1: thanks so much for having me
0: so uh tell us a little bit about uh the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network and what it is, when it was formed, and uh, kind of its mission?
1: Yeah. um, Well, uh, we started really formally um, in 2013. And uh, I think like a lot of people who are involved in environmental issues, there's certain moments that, that call your attention and for me, um, it was just looking at the lack of urgency and insufficient ambition of a lot of international climate agreements and national climate policies um, that really um, called me to to found the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. We can to really um, generate more education and activity. Uh, from women leaders and their networks to accelerate a, a global women's movement for the protection and defense of the Earth's diverse ecosystems, our communities, and the climate. And we started with um, a uh, a very large summit that took place during uh, the UN General Assembly in New York with 100 women leaders from around the world Um Uh, 50 from the Global South, 50 from the Global North with well-known leaders and then a lot of grassroots leaders to to talk about, um, you know, what we could do around the climate crisis and creating, um, you know, practical on-the-ground solutions as well as policy action. And so that's really how we got started and, and we're looking in our organization at both short-term and long-term systemic change. And, you know, how do we, how do we deal with climate justice, social inequality, while we also wrestle with these incredibly complex problems. So that's sort of a little bit of the beginning and why we got started.
0: Tell us a little bit about uh, your journey and what, uh, what brought you to, uh, you know, we can, uh, how did, how did you end up uh, on that path as an environmentalist?
1: Well, um, I actually was an artist for many years, um, telling narratives uh, in, in writing and in sculpture form around our relationship with nature. And in many ways, this is an extension of that. Um, I, um, you know, as I was saying earlier, I really feel that as the climate crisis and ecological crisis really increased, I wanted to do more. Um, And uh, I do have some background originally when I started the organization with activism in the sense of um, being involved with a lot of uh, protection of the redwood forests in California. I grew up in the town of Mendocino in Northern California, and that's always a big issue there around the the logging of the redwood forest. And so, you know, it's always sort of been part of my DNA, I guess, um, since my youth to be interested in, in environmental issues and care for nature, but also, you know, um, as I evolved in my own education, understanding more and more the role of Indigenous people and frontline communities and the impacts of environmental degradation on um, frontline communities. So that also led me to understand more. There was also a gender lens Um, because when we analyze root causes of the climate crisis, uh, we really can see that women experience climate change disproportionately because their basic rights continue to be denied in varying forms and intensities across the world. Um, As an example, enforced gender inequality reduces women's physical economic mobility, their voice and opportunity in many places, and this makes them more vulnerable to to mounting environmental stresses. Um, And so that That was very interesting to me. And also at the same time, when I did a lot of research, when I started the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, I found that um, it turns out you can't get to sustainability without women's leadership. Um, So as an example, um, you know, not only are women um, more uh, unequally impacted, but when we look globally, we see that women are responsible for the majority of the world's food production um, in most Global South countries, women produce between 40 to 80% of food and are central stewards of seeds and agricultural b- biodiversity, which, of course, is very tied into how we're going to, to address biodiversity issues as well as climate issues. Um, I also just uh, did a deep analysis of a study that we came out on. Um, uh, actually with the report to really lift up this research that was done that just a one unit increase in a country score in the women's political empowerment index, which has to do with, you know, the role of women in society um, and, and their role in politics and socially um, just a one unit increase um, produces an 11.51 decrease percent decrease in the country's carbon emissions. So in other words, when you're empowering women, in a lot of different spheres, um, socially and politically, um, you actually get this very large reduction in carbon emissions. Um, we also know around forest protection programs, it's very key to involve women. We know from United Nations studies, um, of course, water issues are really key to what's happening with droughts around the world because of climate change. And when you involve women in these programs around uh, water security, and, and ensuring that there's water for communities, um, you can't have successful problems and le- successful solutions to these problems and these programs unless you involve women and women's leadership because they're the ones who are attending to their home, caring for the food and caring for the family and collecting the water. So there's you know a variety of reasons that um, you actually really need to involve women um, in climate solutions. We also know this is true for climate policy that. Uh, countries around the world that have more women um, in their parliaments and governments have more success with their environmental policies. So really from the grassroots level to the policy level, um, when I first started uh, WeCan, we found that you you know, one of the key leverages to sort of navigating through this very challenging time of environmental climate crisis is, is to really empower women and, and lift up the role of women's leadership so, contrasting to that, and then I'll, I'll close, is that you know I just came back from um, COP 27 in Egypt from the, the UN climate talks, and uh, the UN themselves came out with a study last year saying that 73 percent of the talking time that is taken up um, by governments um, at the UN climate talks, 73 to 74 percent is done by men. So we have this very unusual discrepancy about the role of women and the need for women's leadership, and yet they're really not. Um, In positions of power as they should be when we're talking about um, environmental policy and climate policy?
0: Well, uh, you know, I I have been saying for a while that I believe the the revolution in the 21st century is going to be in terms of women's rights around the world and that uh, there's so many places around the world where women are, um, you know, treated so poorly and there is a A great need to expand the rights of women to get equality in all ways and this is one of the main reasons why we're in this shape that we're in uh, because of uh, not having women at the table and bringing the gifts that they have to the table so that we can solve our problems more effectively and unfortunately um our society has in in many ways in many parts of the world and have uh, been slow to adopt that. And even in the U.S. where we've had great strides, there's still uh, room for improvement. So um, that, that being said, um, what do you see as, have you seen improvements uh, in, say, for example, the COP programs over the last few years? Has the amount of uh, participation by women at those uh, meetings increased Uh, substantially or at all or gone backwards and uh, what are the steps that you and others are taking in order to um, increase the level of participation of women uh, in policy making as well as practical on the ground solutions Um, and just to to uh, for the audience uh, my understanding is that you're organization has lots of powerful women on your board, which uh, contribute to the work that you're doing. And maybe you could speak a little bit about that as well.
1: Yeah, um, I would say that, you know, from when we started the organization, you know, more formally in 2013, I will say things have improved, not nearly enough. Um, But when we started really working at the nexus of climate and, and gender, um, you know, it wasn't even um, a discussion that people were willing to have with us um, from funders to policymakers and, you know, not just because of WeCan, but many, many uh, feminist and women's organizations around the world. I think we've taken a lot of good stride in in the last decade, and um, you know, one of the breakthroughs at the policy level, I will say, in terms of the COP, is that there there are different constituencies of civil society that are represented, whether that's labor unions or scientists and researchers, um, uh, indigenous caucus. Uh, there has been the formation of something called the women and gender constituency. Um, which is about, I don't know how many years old it is now, but you know, it's somewhere around eight to 10 years. And that has been really powerful because that has given, uh, um, women and feminists an opportunity to have their own constituency and bring forward these issues that we're talking about in terms of rights.
0: Well, uh, obviously a lot to talk about in this area and, uh, when we get back after the break, uh, you can pick up your answer and uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got Osprey or- Oriel Lake, who is the executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network on the show today. And we'll be right back to talk to her about uh, these very important issues. You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Osprey Oriel Lake, executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, on the show. And uh, Osprey, uh, you were at the COP uh, meeting in in, um, in Egypt uh, just last. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what happened, uh, and what was what what if any breakthroughs occurred, and what if any uh, impediments were unable to be resolved.
1: Yeah. Uh, I just got back a couple of weeks ago and still really processing and thinking about it It was a, Uh, I was there for two and a half weeks uh, with an incredible delegation of um, indigenous women that uh, were on our weekend delegation from Brazil and Ecuador and the DR Congo and uh, the Ponca Nation. So I was really honored to bring a a really powerful delegation of women to speak about what is happening in their communities and to speak with governments and to to host meetings and press conferences. Um, And... Um, I think one of the things that we need to look at is that, um, you know, ahead of the UN climate cho- uh, claimed, uh, climate change talk in uh, Egypt, um, the UN put out, um, you know, their own report that current pledges by government, governments put the world on track right now for 25 degree increase in warming by the end of the century when we need to be, um, according to the IPCC scientists, we need to be at 1.5 degrees. um, And we need to decline by 45% by 2030 to do that. So um, I think that we need to realize we're in a, a very difficult situation with really unacceptable numbers. Um, and so we went into a very difficult, challenging negotiation with that in mind. Um, and, uh, I think I'll, I'll point out like two things that were, were really significant at this COP, you know, one, which I would consider a really big victory, which is for, you know, years now, some people say 30 years, it's been a long time, um, civil society, uh, supporting vulnerable countries like island nations that are threatened by completely being disappeared by sea level rise due to global warming, um, have been fighting for something called uh, a loss and damage mechanism, which is basically um, at its core, uh, a term that refers to both financial and non-financial losses and damages um, as, a to, as, a real, as a result of the climate crisis. Um, and it really requires Um, financial investment for repairs and is mostly the responsibility of wealthy countries who have caused most of the damage and causing most of the uh, pollution in the atmosphere to pay their fair share to more vulnerable countries um, that um, are being impacted first and worst by the crisis and have done the least to contribute to it. And this loss and damage Fund has been discussed many, many times, and it has been a huge push by civil society um, to to demand that that wealthy countries uh, pay pay for this um, the actual events that are already occurring, not in the future sometime, but the the climate crisis that is already upon, upon us. Like as we saw with the the floods in Pakistan, so um, the fact that at the end of the negotiations in Egypt. The cover text, in fact, there was an agreement that loss and damage mechanism um, was um, operationalized. is a huge victory. So I would say that was a very big outcome. Of course, we have to see if countries are actually going to put money into the loss and damage fund. Um, and I should mention this is on top of um, the Green Climate Fund, which was established some years ago. That uh, is is requiring a hundred billion dollars to be put into a fund for uh, for mitigation and adaptation to uh, the climate crisis, and that fund is not. Um, At this point being met by wealthy countries. So, you know, these pledges and commitments are really important because they're leverage for advocacy and leverage for us to to move forward with governments doing the right thing around the crisis. But, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done to actually implement them and for for the money to actually be there. But it was still a very big victory on loss and damage. And um, I would also say it really uh, needs to be noted that It's sort of the first time that I've seen governments really acknowledge that there needs to be a climate justice framework, meaning that, um, you know, there needs to be uh, an understanding that not everyone is um, equally responsible or being affected equally. And I think that that's really important because we know that Indigenous, Black and Brown communities, Global South communities um, are being um, affected more due to uh, colonization and racism and patriarchy and these systems of oppression that are all a part of uh, the systems that we're in, including this economic model that we're in of endless growth. All of these intersectional Issues always come forward when we're at these climate talks because everything is connected, and we can't sort of separate out everything when we're talking about a relationship to nature, when we're talking about a relationship to each other, and how we're going to unwind um, these very complex problems that we're having. So, this loss and damage fund really starts getting at some of the root causes of the problem, and uh, also speaks to climate justice and 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 people paying their fair share for their harms. Um, the one thing that um, of many that was very disappointing, that was very difficult is that um, India and of course other countries, but India put forward a proposal to not only have there be a phase out of um, coal, which had been on the table since Glasgow, a phase out of, of uh, I should say phase down, not a phase out, phase down of coal, but to also add oil and gas. And um, it was very interesting because um, this phase out, which was surprisingly supported by, you know, around 80 countries endorsing the initiative, including countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, um, all being part of this push for phase down um, was very significant, but um, ultimately uh, failed and and was rejected and was not. Um, part of the the outcome agreement of of the the COP in 27, but I think it's really of note that it actually was put on the table and is something that we need to really look towards um, when, when we look at COP 28 and realizing that, you know, this needs to be front and center. Um, as many people know, the the Paris Climate Agreement that everyone is operating from um, really speaks a lot to uh, carbon emission reductions and country commitments to their reductions. But it does not address the source of the emissions in the atmosphere, which is fossil fuels. And so, this has been a big push by civil society: is that we must discuss fossil fuels. And I'll just say one more piece on that, which is that. Um, One of the the, um, initiatives that we can as a part of are on the steering committee of the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty, and I think this is a very exciting development um, that has a long history um, but has a new reiteration that started in 2020 um and basically it is not part of the paris climate agreement but would be a parallel treaty that uh basically um is designed to have countries have a mechanism to uh come off of fossil fuels phase out fossil fuels and it's designed on the nuclear non-proliferation treaty similarly where you, you have to have countries agree, how do we have a fair and just and equitable way to transition off of fossil fuels? So um, it's comprised of three components. One is the end of the expansion of fossil fuel production, um, right. which the International Energy Agency, the IPCC, everyone is saying we have got to stop fossil fuel expansion if we're going to stop this climate crisis. The second is a phase down of existing production, in line with the 1.5 degree guardrail target and then lastly you know enabling a global equitable transition for every worker community and country to get off fossil fuels and i mentioned this because it was not actually on the sidelines it became you know it's not part of the paris agreement as i said but um what is really interesting is that um uh uh, the country of Tuvalu joined Vanuatu, who endorsed the treaty at the UN General Assembly um, in September of this year. And at the COP, the country of Tuvalu uh, formally endorsed the treaty on the floor of the UN uh, climate talks. So now we have two countries who are um, really pushing for this agenda of a fossil fuel treaty. Um, and after that happened, there were multiple high-level bilateral, multilateral meetings with at least 25 countries around this treaty. So I just wanted to mention that because it was, again, not part of the formal negotiations, but I think it's important for people to know that there's this discussion going on about, like how do we actually get countries to move off of fossil fuels?
0: Well, that's uh, a lot of ground that you just covered um i guess um a couple things one the 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 victory you described re- regarding the loss and damage of uh, fund and which you did talk about that right now doesn't have a real mechanism for um enforcement of that or what that really means uh, is is certainly a big issue for the future and, and how that's gonna shake out. And right now people are talking about how it's gonna happen and, and that's, I guess you've got a the journey of a thousand miles begins with a, a single step. So that was a, a step in the right direction. Uh, the question then is, uh, what are those steps? What are those mechanisms for really moving that forward? Uh, then you talked a, a bit about Um, the climate justice framework and uh, you mentioned systems of oppression. And I guess the question there is uh, for the audience is exactly maybe going into what you, you know, defining what that means and uh, also potentially uh, in terms of selling it and being more persuasive uh, from a from a political standpoint. Uh, my two cents would be maybe uh, coming up with a term that was not quite so uh, in your face uh, that might be a little easier to, uh, you know, ha- for the listener, some listeners ears, that may be a, a bit challenging. So anyway, you, we'll be right back in just one minute. This is uh, Matt Matter and uh, you listen to a climate change. We've got Osprey Oriel Lake Executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, we can, and we'll be talking to Osprey when we get back in just one minute about these uh, urgently important issues. <music> You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got Osprey Oriole lake Executive director of the woman's earth and climate action network on the show today uh right before the break we were talking about cop 27 and osprey had been there and uh talked about a couple of uh, what she saw as big victories the loss and damage fund as well as uh the the uh, climate justice framework which is being worked on um even and uh Also, you referred to, Osprey, about the Paris Agreement. And uh, having read the Paris Agreement, it uh, seemed awfully kind of fluffy. As a trained lawyer, I reviewed it, and I'm looking at it from like the standpoint of being a contract and being enforceable. And I think there are holes in it that are wider than, you know, trucks and planes can fly through this thing. So it just, there's, there to me it seems like there's not much there there um i realize it's kind of a a political document which is mostly aspirational and you hope that countries follow it but there isn't a whole lot of enforceability um and what are your thoughts about that as well as the loss and damage fund as far as where that's going um are these just aspirational frameworks and then the the real work it's done at the local level and the national level to correspond with these uh, overarching goals
1: yeah really good questions I mean I think that um you know I think it's really important to put the the Paris climate agreement and these climate talks these cops in context like as an example an organization like ours I would say, we spend maybe one sixth of our entire uh, year and energy and programmatic focus on it. Because if we were only going to rely on these international agreements and that process at the UNFCCC, uh, we would basically burn the planet uh, because they are too incremental. Um, There are a lot of uh, sort of pledges being made that don't get followed up on, or if they do, it's too slow. And, um, so, I think that, you know, contextually, the COP is really good for a place. We need an international forum for nation states to get together and deal with, the, with these collective crises of humanity and the earth. However, I would definitely agree with you that they're completely insufficient. And so, a lot of the work needs to be done at home, at the grassroots level, at the community level, at the local and national level. Um, but but it it is important that we have a, a global space an international space for these discussions um and that civil society um you know and and countries that are both being impacted really push wealthy countries and governments to to live up to the expectations of of, of the paris climate agreement
0: so uh in terms of that happening, what do you see on the ground, uh, since the Paris agreement in particular as to progress being, made? what do you, how would you grade the world's progress since, uh, the Paris agreement was signed in 2015, I believe.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, the, the, uh, movements for Um, you know, food security and food sovereignty and agroecology and people planting forests and forest protection and indigenous rights and feminist uh, economies and um, looking at circular economics. All these movements are tremendous. What people are doing to heal the earth and stop plastic pollution is endless and beautiful and growing and flourishing. So I would give communities and, you know, um, groups that are working in a variety of ways, a big A plus, I would not give governments a good grade. (laughs) So I think that, um, you know, we're, we're caught in very complex economic and political geopolitical situations that make it really difficult for governments to work at speed and scale, but also not just that, uh, with a framing that is um, equitable. Um, I think governments are really struggling with that. Like how do you actually implement policies that are just and fair and don't um, adhere to corporate interests as an example. And, and just to put it out there, you know, global witness came out with a report report when we were at cop 27 that there was 25% more fossil fuel industry representatives at this COP influencing the negotiations than last year. And they're like the biggest, um, one of the biggest um, constituencies that are there, you know, lobbying for their interests. So I think we we have a lot of work to do when it comes to um, uh, how do we have these international agreements really work for people and planet versus corporate interests.
0: Well, uh, I'm not going to let you duck the tough question here. You, you know, what do, what are the grades of government? And I realize it's a very challenging question, but uh, that's why, you know, you're the executive director. You make the tough calls. What what do you say governments are doing across the board? How do, how do they get, uh, get graded? A or F?
1: Uh, I or would B say, or C? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would I would not look at them as one block. I would say that the wealthy countries are in the C and D and maybe sometimes F category. I do think that island nations um, are more in the A and B category. You know, those who are who are looking at their very survival quickly are doing far better and leading out on, you know, wanting there to be, you know as I was mentioning, Vanuatu and Tuvalu strongly calling for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, I would give them an A. So I think it depends on the country and the threats that they're facing. And um, though, you know, I think that uh, New Zealand is doing a great job. Um, So there's good leadership uh, happening in a lot of different places, but I think the wealthy countries are not faring well.
0: How about the US? Where are we?
1: Um, I think we're sort of in this, you know, C to D range. I mean, I think that we are, um, you know, laggards when it comes to contributing to the hundred billion dollar fund. I think that we are uh, need to be much, much, much more ambitious on understanding also false solutions to the climate crisis versus really community led solutions, which is a whole whole topic. Um, And I think that that what's very difficult is how do we uh, reframe that solving the climate crisis is not something we can buy our way out of. And, uh, you know, when we look at things like carbon offsets from forests and some of these uh, carbon trading schemes, that the whole model continues to further um, this idea of endless economic growth and who's going to prosper from um, the transition to a new economy, and I think uh, you know that's it's a very complex topic that can't can't be done in a short uh, short uh, interview. But I would just say that I think we have to get at the core of what is an equitable uh, resolve to the climate crisis, and the United States needs to do much better on the the equitable aspect of our our, our climate programs. Well.
0: Uh- I would ask you, you referred to that there should be more ambitious solutions by our governments. Uh, what ambitious solutions would you suggest uh, the U.S. government engage in, say, name three to five that, or, or less that you just think are the most important ones that we should be focusing on?
1: Well, I think, you know, the most important thing right now is the revolving bo- door between you know, the fossil fuel industry and government leaders right there, full stop. Uh, We need to, you know, at these international forums, uh, you know, we can uh, state that we, you know, as, as I was mentioning, that we would support a fossil fuel phase down as was pushed for COP27 and then come home and continue to expand fossil fuels. And so... Uh, I think this is one of the biggest things we need to address is where are the government leaders in the United States willing to stand up to the fossil fuel industry? Um, you know, we have uh, you know, all this fossil fuel leasing being opened up. We have the Willow Project up in Alaska, we have Line Five from Enbridge, we have um the Mountain Valley Pipeline, we have huge expansion in the Gulf South with the Formosa plant and more and more pipelines planned. So we can't be talking about Uh, You know, ending the climate crisis or, you know, at least, um, you know, lessening the impact of the climate crisis, understanding it's caused by fossil fuel and carbon emissions, and then not doing anything about reduction of fossil fuels. So that would be like the one big thing is how do we make this transition?
0: I, you know, I'm there with you in terms of the ultimate goal. I guess I just say we do have the situation of the war in Ukraine, which has kind of blown up literally and figuratively um, the fossil fuel uh situation for everybody. Um you know, so it's it kind of blew a hole in what would have been the phase-down strategy uh because of the problems that uh, we're facing in in trying to deal with Russia and reduce any dependence that Europe and the US has on a um, those fossil fuels coming out of Russia. So uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Osprey Oriel-Lake, Executive Director of Women's Earth and Climate Action Network on the show. And we'll be right back in just one minute. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern. I've got Osprey Oriole lake executive director of the Women's uh, Earth and Climate Action Network, can, And uh, Osprey, we were just talking about before the break, the the fact that the war in the Ukraine has uh, thrown a a, uh, monkey wrench in the plan of reducing consumption of fossil fuel and and because of the need to kind of substitute uh, the Russian fuel that had been fueling uh, Europe with some American fuel and and other countries as well. So that being said, uh, it leaves us in this Hobson's choice right now that we either use a little bit more fossil fuel now than we'd like to, you know, uh, potentially drill some more now to offset the the Russian production or uh, take the Russian production and use it. Uh, or I mean the Europeans primarily. Uh, it's it's not a good choice. I think there there have been some silver linings uh, in terms of I, I think you see uh, European countries turning away from fossil fuels even more in the long term, and you see a lot of people in Europe uh, building out solar and and um, even more wind because they realize that that uh, relying upon the Russian oil and gas industry is, um, is an unstable and risky bet. So um, it it may take a few years for this or more to, for all this to roll out, but it may further speed the, um, you know, getting off the addiction to fossil fuels. What do you say?
1: I I completely agree. I mean, I think that it's, you know, again, we have, many, many complex interrelated issues of geopolitics and uh, the the climate crisis itself and how it's playing out in terms of uh, extreme weather events and the war in Ukraine. And um, so, you know, no one is saying that we're going to turn off fossil fuels tomorrow. That's why it's a phase out or a phase down is because it's a process that has to be negotiated by, you know, global governments in a way that makes sense. But it, the thing is, we need to get on with it. And that's really, I think, the main point is that we need a, a mechanism to actually have governments collectively figure out how to do that. So yes, there is a situation in Ukraine and the need for Europeans to have um, you know, the fossil fuels that they need through the winter. And, you know, no one is saying that that tap should be turned off immediately. It's more the overview of how do we get on with this, this, um, phase out in a equitable and consistent manner at speed and scale and get into that dialogue very seriously. And we also need to remember there's a lot of reports out there, um, Not that I've delved into them, you know, as far as I wanted to, but there's certainly a lot of reports around the kind of fossil fuel stocks that we have in place as well and what is actually really needed and how much the fossil fuel industry is actually profiting off of this moment um, while the gas uh, prices are increasing, so I think there's um, a lot to be said about how governments need to be more engaged in regulation of the fossil fuel industry, and also how we're going to engage in this phase out, and of course taking into consideration, you know, which countries need what when, depending on different geopolitical situations.
0: Yeah, it's certainly a very complex problem, and, and we do need to start dealing with it more effectively and ambitiously um, in that uh, we don't have an infinite, infinite amount of time to uh, reduce our carbon emissions um, to reach a potential tipping point that would um, put the earth in a downward cycle where it make it unlivable for billions of people. So obviously um, we need to get our act together. Uh, speaking of the earth, I we had talked about the rights of nature offline and uh, like to have you talk uh, about that and and what are the rights of nature? My understanding of it essentially is that rivers and forests and things of that nature would have rights. Uh, you know, currently uh, they don't, in, at least in the U.S., to sue for being polluted uh, in um, so it would be a fundamental change in the U.S. legal system to give uh, nature rights similar to humans, as well as it, it, corporations have rights and they're not humans, uh, but they, they have rights, and also ships even have rights because there's certain maritime law that gives ships rights, but somehow nature doesn't have any rights. So uh, what's the uh, what's the status of this? in the U S as well as in other countries.
1: Yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, uh, I'm part of a, a network of, um, people who are involved in this movement. It's called the global Alliance for the rights of nature. And it's, it's a wonderful Alliance that is international, um, that has been together really since, um, uh, Evo Morales in Bolivia called for uh, the conference on Mother Earth um, and uh, and climate um, in two thousand nine, and so the Global Alliance for Nature was started in two thousand ten, I believe. And um, basically, as you say, it's really looking at how do we create laws around nature that respect the natural systems and are elevated to the level of human rights. And, you know, what we can see is that our current legal systems around nature are not working or we would not be in this climate crisis or facing such horrible environmental degradation. So it's not that environmental protection laws are, you know, completely unsuccessful, but they're obviously not working to the level that they need to because we keep having these grave threats um, um, escalating. And so it is about looking very deep. Differently, sort of at the DNA of our legal frameworks to respect the natural laws of the earth versus what we have now, which is a property right system in essence. So instead of seeing nature as property, it's seeing nature as a rights bearing entity um, and um, really changing the current structure of law to do so. Uh, because otherwise we're going to continue to see these harms. And one thing that I think is, is really interesting, it's about really advocating that breaking out of the human-centered limitations of our current legal systems um, is, is one of the most leveraged actions that we can take to really have a healthy and equitable future for, for everyone. Um, and then I'll just, you know, hand it back to you after saying that, you know, um, I think what's really exciting is that it's not just sort of a, a form of what's called earth jurisprudence or earth law philosophy, um, we, we are actually seeing the enactment of the rights of nature. So in the United States, there's over three dozen local rights of nature ordinances in place where communities have protected their communities from, uh, harms to their waterways or to certain industries coming in, um, And it's also happened at the national level in 2008, Ecuador became the first country in the world to recognize rights of nature in their constitution. And there's been legal cases now being won in Ecuador using that constitutional right. Um, The Ponca Nation, the indigenous nation of Ponca Nation here in the United States made history... Uh, just earlier this year, as the first tribe in the US to recognize rights of nature and law to protect their territory from fossil fuel extraction to protect their waterways. Um, I was also a few years ago in New Zealand, where their parliament has given the Whanganui River legal standing um, and is protected under a form of rights of nature laws. So it's just to say that, you know, um, it's way past an idea. There are. It's one of the fastest growing movements internationally. Is is this idea of bringing rights to nature, and um, I think it's really exciting because it really puts humans in place to the ecosystem, is which is where we really need to be.
0: Well, certainly, it uh, is an important uh, development. And uh, just from somebody who is an environmental lawsuit against Exxon, I can see the challenges of. If you are dealing with it from the standpoint of only being able to represent the humans involved, you have certain limitations. Versus, say, the the air that we breathe uh, being polluted may not have uh, the same rights as. And and if you can't show harm to a specific individual getting, say, cancer from the toxins being emitted, uh, then you're somehow prevented from uh, getting a recovery where it's absolutely certain that they are putting carcinogens in the air and the regulatory limits. But it's very challenging to track that down to any one polluter because there's so many polluters out there. Exxon will point to, well, there's so many other sources of this pollution. How can we be responsible for this person's cancer? Um, which, you know, is a reasonable point as far as causation of an individual's uh, loss or damage. But there's absolutely no doubt that they are damaging the air that we collectively breathe and polluting it so that all of us are more likely to get sick and get ill or get asthma or et cetera, et cetera. So um, this is a potential breakthrough. I, uh, I think we've run out of time, Osprey, but uh, it's been great having you on the show and uh, thank you for joining us and, and uh, talking about all these important issues with us uh, and I think educating us to what's happening out there in the world.
1: Thanks so much for having me on your show and a great conversation. Thank you.